Luke's Gospel, the seventh chapter. As we continue our series in the Gospel of Luke. Beginning with verse 11. I dearly love this passage. Will you pray with me? Our gracious God and Father, we are thankful for your word. And we would remember that as a Reformed church, the Protestant Reformation was all about an attentive listening to your word. An attentive listening with the ear, yes, but with the heart, with the soul, with the affections, so that it changes and transforms who we are and conforms us to the image of your Son. Father, we thank you for giving to us the word read and the word proclaimed. And we offer to you praise that we can gather here in freedom. And we pray that this freedom and others will not be lost. And now, Father, as we turn to this text, may it be for your people, may it be a wonderful comfort as we see Jesus Christ, the author of life, the Lord even over death, may it comfort our souls, and may there be some lost person who is drawn out of death into life, as the word is proclaimed on this Lord's day. These things we pray in the name of Christ Jesus, our risen Lord. Amen. Will you stand with your copy of God's word, Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 11. This is the word of God. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. The authority of Jesus is proven and demonstrated in his miracles. In a dying servant that Jesus heals from a distance, as we saw last week, and here it is seen even more remarkably in the removal of a widow's sorrow in raising her dead son back to life. So Jesus and his disciples and a great crowd is on his way, and they with him, 
on the road to the little village of Nain. Now, there is still a little village much smaller than the village in Jesus' day that is there even today. But on the road to Nain, we will see, first of all, that life meets death. Life meets death. Nain was in the southern part of Galilee, nestled in what must be very beautiful mountainous country on the slopes of what is called Little Hermon, a lovely scene, a lovely scene in which to meet death. There's a burying ground about 10 minutes walk outside of the east of Nain, which I've discovered is still in use today. Alfred Edersheim, the great Jewish Christian New Testament scholar who wrote this little book called Sketches in Jewish Social Life, which is an absolute gold mine for New Testament scholarship, made the statement, on the path leading to it, the Lord of life for the first time burst open the gates of death. So we see in this passage that the prince of life meets death. A woman's only son, dead, is being carried out of the city to that little cemetery about 10 minutes outside the city gate. Now, when a funeral procession passed by in those days, everyone was expected to join in. And so the crowd is gathering, the crowd that's come with Jesus, of course, but there is the crowd that's gathering now that is around the funeral beer and with the funeral party. And if you had been there and had been a part of that culture when you saw it, just as perhaps today, when we see a funeral go by, we pull the car over, or at least we should, and that day you actually joined the funeral procession. Usually burial was as soon as possible after death, and the burial procession was moving now outside the city. Jesus and his disciples meet the procession just outside the city gate. And Jesus finds that there is this boy, this, this young man that has died, the only son of the woman who is leading the procession. Literally translated, it reads, the only begotten son of his mother. The text is stressing, this is her only son. Now let me tell you, there is nothing more painful in this life than for a family to lose a child. Some of you know what I'm talking about. There can be nothing more painful for this woman than that her son has died. There's incredible pathos here. I hope that you will enter in with your mind and with your heart and affections to what is being described for us briefly but so clearly in this passage. There would be care and longing and memories and sorrow and extreme grief as her heart is breaking because her only begotten son is now dead. And on top of all of that, the Jewish approach to death would more likely engender fear rather than comfort. Usually, in the Jewish view of death, accompanying that view of death was a profound sense of uncertainty. Again, Edersheim in his sketches on Jewish social life points to two rabbis. One was actually called the Light of Israel, and he burst into tears on his deathbed. Now this rabbi, a teacher of Israel, burst into tears on his deathbed 
out of fear of meeting God. He trembled and he wept out of fear of meeting God. And he said, there are before me two ways, one to paradise and the other to hell, and I know not which of these two ways I shall have to go. So a rabbi of Israel called the light of Israel did not know when he died if he would go to heaven or if he would go to hell. But then Edersheim tells us of another rabbi, well-known rabbi, who died lifting up both hands, protesting that none of his fingers had broken any of the commandments of God. None of the Ten Commandments had been broken by these fingers. Now imagine that, going into the presence of God, saying, I've never broken your law. And of course, what that rabbi did not know and did not understand is that the breaking of the law of God is not simply a matter of externals, is it? But as we've already seen in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus emphasizes it is a matter of the heart. So the options in the day in which Jesus, our Savior, walked this earth were for the most part either utter and complete hopelessness at a funeral or unwarranted presumption at a funeral. The mother would have torn her upper garments, which was a custom of the day, mourning and lament a mournful procession. There would have undoubtedly have been at least, at least two hired mourners to lead the mourners in the party. And there would have been mournful, melancholy tunes played on flutes. So it's a very pathetic, loud, grievous, in some ways dark scene. Now the text adds to that because it not only tells us that the only begotten son of this mother was dead, but it adds, and she was a widow. Now think of what that means, because widows typically in Palestine, in the day in which our Lord ministered on earth, widows were typically very poor. Often they were exploited. Very often they were unable to find justice. You remember in Luke 18 that when Jesus tells the the parable of the importunate widow knocking upon the judge's door in order that she might receive justice, telling us, of course, that our prayers should be like that importunate widow. The reason that she that he can actually use the widow as an example is because this was typical of widows. They did not receive justice, and they were very oppressed. In Mark 12, we read of the Pharisees who devour widows' houses. And so widows were poor and very often taken advantage of. It speaks of the wonderful transformation of the gospel that after the resurrection, the early church cared for widows, loved widows, made provision for widows, and even established an order of widows who were both cared for and had responsibilities of service in the church. The first deacons, the first seven deacons, as we read in Acts chapter 6, the diaconate was established, first of all, so that the apostles could continue to preach the word And those widows that thought they were being neglected in the daily distribution of food would be cared for by the church. 
And when we come to 1 Timothy chapter 5, we see that widows who had reached the age of 60, who, had example, who were examples of Christian piety, these widows were provided for but actually also helped to provide for others in the church because of their experience as Christian women. And so the resurrection of Jesus in the gospel changes completely the attitude toward the widow in the ancient world and should in ours as well. Now, as a widow, this son of hers would probably have been her, her only means of future provision. This is the young man who, we don't know how old he was, but he was a young man. The text makes that plain. But he would have grown. He would have, he would have worked. He would have taken a job. He would have earned money. He would have cared for his mother. He would have loved his mother, provided food for his mother. Uh, as she turned into an old woman, perhaps hunched over, and she had little vitality, he would love her and care for her. This is her only son. She doesn't have two sons, three sons, five or six sons. She has one son. And now... This widow, she doesn't have a husband to provide for her. She's widowed. There's no husband. This is the ancient world. How is she going to be provided for? She's destitute. She's weeping because her son is dead. But undoubtedly, it must be upon her mind. Now, how am I going to live also? She's utterly destitute. So Jesus and his disciples arrived, and this woman and other women would have been in the front of the funeral procession. The reason for this is that the rabbi said, since a woman first sinned and sin entered into the world because of the woman's first sin, she should be at the forefront of the funeral procession. Now we know that we fell in Adam, but this is what the rabbis taught. So there she is, she's at the forefront, she's weeping. Her clothes are torn. The other women are weeping. Can you hear the, mu- the music? The sad, sad flutes that are playing. The mourners that are crying so loudly to lead others also in that. And the official mourning would have gone on for 30 days. But she would have mourned the rest of her life. So do you picture the scene? Can you see what's happening here? Perhaps sometimes you've seen funerals in the Middle East today on news reports, and you see that sometimes there's almost wild and frantic emotion that's being expressed. Well, it must have been something like that. It's a loud, noisy, sad, grievous, pathetic scene that is before us. Do you feel her pain? Do you enter into her need? Do you sympathize or perhaps some of you empathize with this woman? Well, secondly, note with me our Lord's omnipotent compassion. In verse 13 we read, And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Or it could be translated, Cease weeping. Cease weeping. My son is dead. I have no future. The one whom I loved is about to be, we're we're 10 minutes from where he will be laid in a tomb. You tell me to cease weeping. 
Well, the text doesn't tell us her response, does it? But it was not insensitive on Jesus' part. It was a hopeful command. It would have been insensitive. It would have been cruel had this not been Jesus. It would have been insensitive. It would have been cruel were he not able to do something about it. It would have been insensitive and cruel were he not able to bring this child back to life. How strange this must have sounded. And God's mercy shows through Christ because the very inner being of our Savior as he saw her is moved to compassion for her. God's mercy is shown through our Savior even though the miserable are the objects of God's mercy. Misery beheld is not the cause of God's mercy. In Exodus 34, when God describes himself to Moses, he says, I am merciful. It is who he is. And now the Son of God is ministering on this earth. And he is revealing the heart of the Father. He who has seen me, Jesus will say, has seen the Father. Do you know that God is rich in mercy? Have you experienced that mercy? Do you recognize his merciful hand in your life? Now, don't you find it interesting that he requires nothing of this woman? He doesn't say to this mother, say something, do something, stand here, stand there. He doesn't even require faith of her. He required nothing of her. He simply came and intervened. Do not weep. And he could say that because Jesus is in control of hopeless circumstances. He could say that because his sympathy is not just a matter of feeling, but behind it comes omnipotence. Because his his feeling of sympathy and compassion for her is a feeling of omnipotent sympathy, of omnipotent compassion. He could do something about this situation. And he can sympathize with those whose sorrow, let me repeat, in omnipotence. And he still does. In the midst of those things that may trouble your hearts, in Hebrews 2.14, we are told, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You still have a Savior who cares about you, who loves you. It doesn't say there will not be death or sorrow or hardship. It says that he sympathizes and loves and has compassion for you in it. And that compassion, as we will see, makes all the difference. Note the use of the word Lord in verse 13. Did you notice it? And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. And can we doubt that Luke has chosen this word with very special intention? As a matter of fact, Luke and the book of Acts, after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, will record that Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost and says that this risen, ascended Lord is both Lord and Christ. 
He is the Lord. Now it may be veiled, it may be hidden, but he is the Lord. And his lordship is shown thirdly in this. The third thing, Jesus' authority over death. So Jesus is coming with a great crowd and his disciples toward the gate, the entrance to Nain. The funeral party is coming toward the gate to take this boy so that he may be buried. And Jesus, Jesus stops the funeral. (laughs) Now think about that. Wouldn't it be presumptuous for someone in the midst of a funeral where we are saddened and rejoicing because a brother or a sister has gone on to be with the Lord, if someone stood up and said, stop everything. So that's essentially what Jesus does. He went to the beer. It would have been um, planks. Usually there would be a wicker basket that would hold the remains of the, the dead person. Poles that, that would have been um, carried on the shoulders of men. And by the way, as they went through the town, other men would take their places so that as many as possible could participate in the privilege of carrying the body out to the burial. He goes up then to the beer. Today we would say he went up to the hearse. By the way, it's interesting that on every occasion the verb is used of Jesus approaching that is used here, proserkomai, on every occasion that it's used in the New Testament, it precedes an authoritative act on the part of Jesus. So he goes up to the funeral bier and stops it because he's about to do something. He is about to act. He's expected to join in the procession, but no, he stops the procession. He touches the hearse. He touches it. Now, if we went up to a funeral bier and touched it in that day, I'm sure they wouldn't have stopped for us. There must have been something so authoritative about Jesus' manner that when he touched it, they just stopped. And he touched it. Numbers 19.11, whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. And it's plain from other passages that it's not only touching the body, but touching something related to the dead body made a person ceremonially unclean. But Jesus will not be defiled by death. He is the Lord of death. Hebrews 2.14, he came that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Those carrying the beer stopped. They could not have guessed what was about to happen. Stop the funeral. And Jesus shows his authority in verse 14 by saying, young man, it's evocative, something like, oh, young man, I say to you. And then there's an aorist imperative, it's a command. Oh, young man, I say to you, rise up. And when Jesus says to a dead boy, rise up, A dead boy rises up. Can you imagine their astonished faces? 
One old author says, one word of power burst inwards the sluices of Hades and outflowed once again the tide of life. Sovereign command, calm, majestic, authoritative, but it also was a personal command. It was a command to this boy. And it was a command with this boy's mother in mind because Jesus had compassion for her. And the young man rose up and he began to speak. Maybe when we get to heaven we can say, what did you talk about? What did you say? But he began to speak. And verse 15 is very beautiful. It says that Jesus gave him to his mother. Loving her, having compassion. After all, the boy belongs to him, and he gives her to his mother. A widow's only son, her hope for future sustenance now restored, all of a sudden, the funeral procession must have turned into an astonished, fearful, but joyful kind of celebration. Can you now enter into this woman's joy as you earlier entered into her sorrow? Can you rejoice with her because her son that was dead is now alive, just as you sorrowed with her because her son was dead? How could Jesus do this? Jesus could do what he did because Jesus is life. He is God. He is Jehovah. He is the author of life. He is the one who spoke and the world came into being. The world teemed with life because he said that it should. He is life. He is the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. When Jesus comes, he brings life. He could do this because he is the God-man, the incarnate God, anointed by the Spirit to fulfill the Father's will. He could do this because this resuscitation of this boy is an anticipation of his own resurrection on the third day after crucifixion. The promise of his resurrection underlay all the miracles of the New Testament, but is particularly seen in resurrections in his ministry This raising of this boy, this widow's son, anticipates Jesus' own resurrection on the third day. That the same body that was placed in the tomb would rise from the tomb. That you worship not a dead Savior who cannot save, but a living Lord whose body came out of the tomb. And it also indicates... He could also do this because we will rise, because the New Testament teaches us that the resurrection of Jesus and of his people are inextricable, that if we are not raised, Jesus is not raised. If he is not raised, we will not be raised. Paul says in 1 Corinthians fifteen sixteen, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who sleep. I think this is marvelous. Jesus, who is life, 
incarnate God raised the widow's son. Young man, rise up. Now note fourthly the results of this miracle. Let's read verses 16 and 17 again. Here are the results. Fear seized them all. No wonder. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this whole report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. So the results are these. Fear, it's an aorist. At once there was fear. Literally it reads, fear took all. I can understand that, can't you? Seeing this boy raised from the dead, fear took all. But perhaps for some, it was the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. God is glorified, the text tells us. It's an imperfect, which means this glorification of God began and it increased. And so it went more and more and more through the crowd. It increased. And they declared him to be a prophet. Now they could do that because of Old Testament background. Because of the passage that was read here by Elder Montgomery this morning from 1 Kings 17. Or had we time from 2 Kings chapter 4. In which you have a resurrection of a boy in the life of Elijah and a resurrection in the life of Elisha, these great prophets. As a matter of fact, in 1 Kings, the language that is found in 1 Kings 17.23 in the Septuagint approximates this language, gave the boy back to his mother. And so the language is intentional. He's drawing the connection to 1 Kings 17, Luke is. Yes, he was a prophet, but more than a prophet... He was the final prophet. Deuteronomy 18 says he would be the prophet, the final, the culminating revelation of God, the culminating prophet. After him, there would be no other. He would be the final prophet to come. And no Old Testament prophet raised the dead with a simple word. Ah, there's more than a prophet here. He is our prophet. He is our priest. He is our king. He is the Lord of glory. He is the savior of the world. He is the raiser of the dead. And then notice how beautifully it's put. Look at verse 16 16 again. Fear seized them all and they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. Now we've seen that before. Turn back to Luke chapter 1 as we were working our way through the the birth narrative. Luke chapter 1 68, Zechariah's prophecy. After the birth of John the Baptist, verse 67, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And in verse 78, 
because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. So this word visited has been used earlier in Luke's gospel. It means a display of God's saving power for his people. Indeed, he has visited us with a display of saving power. And do you not sense here the Lord's invitation to the defenseless? As God shows his saving power to this widow, this destitute widow, And do you not sense the Lord's call to you in your helplessness? Because he has already shown in his cross and resurrection his saving power to you. Continues to do so and will again. Well, will you think with me for a few moments about this miracle? Why this miracle and what does it say to us? A lot of things we could say, but let's say a few. First, it says something about resurrection being essential to the gospel, doesn't it? Whether it be the resuscitation of the dead that points ahead to Jesus' own resurrection or our resurrection because of his, resurrection is essential to the gospel, to the good news that has come into this dead world, this dead and dying world, this pathetically sinful, needy world. Quadratus was an early church apologete. You can read this in the Antonicene Fathers, volume 8, page 749. He is addressing the emperor Hadrian in 125 AD. And this is what Quadratus says to Hadrian. Our Savior's works, moreover, were always present, for they were real, consisting of those who had been healed of their diseases, those who had been raised from the dead who were not only seen whilst they were being healed and raised up, but were afterwards constantly present. Nor did they remain only during the sojourn of the Savior on earth, but also a considerable time after his departure. And indeed, some of them have survived even down to our own times. So in 125 AD, Quadratus is writing to the emperor Hadrian saying that some of those that Jesus raised from the dead, and surely not all of them are recorded in the Gospels, some of those that Jesus raised from the dead in the year 125 AD are still alive. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 about those who saw the risen Christ. Yes, of course, the apostles, but over 500 at one time. And of course, by Paul himself as one untimely born. The point is, the Christian faith is based squarely on the historical resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the historical accounts in the New Testament of his resuscitation of this boy and others. It's history. And the only reason for doubting these miracles is the sin of the human heart that does not want to submit to Christ. When God revealed himself, he revealed himself clearly. He did none of these things in a corner. So resurrection is essential to the gospel, and it is good news when you stand by the grave of one of our loved ones here in this church that resurrection is essential to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? But then also this text says to us, the miracles of Jesus were signs, never forget, the miracles of Jesus were always signs of the kingdom. 
that God's saving rule has broken into time and space, that that saving rule has arrived in Christ. And so this miracle of the resurrection of this young boy would help us to remember that it points beyond that to all of the powerful saving work of the kingdom of God that is brought in and through Jesus Christ. For example, the resurrection spiritually of sinners who are dead now. We're all born dead in trespasses and sins, the scriptures teach. And there is someone here perhaps today, and the funeral bier is on its way to an eternal punishment. And there is much mourning that is going on for someone here because there's some mother or some father who is weeping before the Lord saying, Lord, my child is lost, does not know you. But if Jesus stops the beer, stops the hearse, and says to you, rise up, then you will rise up. You will be saved indeed. May he do so even as the word is preached now. But because this miracle is a sign of God's saving rule, especially the resurrection miracles point ahead to the promise that Christ redeems from all evil and all the effects of sin, and that there will be a resurrection and a restoration of the fullness of life, a recreation, a new heavens, and a new earth that will surely come when Jesus splits the sky at his return. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. But then, thirdly, this miracle says something else to us. Not only that resurrection is at the core of the gospel, not only that the miracles of Jesus were signs of God's saving rule having entered into the world, but every believer in Christ should take to heart that when you weep and you sorrow and you're sad and you're discouraged, that Jesus has omnipotent compassion for you and he has promised he has promised in this miracle that what he did for this poor widow he will do for you but even grander even grander turn to revelation chapter 21 what will jesus do for you sorrowing sad discouraged Christian, Revelation 21, the first few verses. Revelation 21, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear 
from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Do you know sadness in your heart? Perhaps you are the happiest and gladdest Christian on the globe this morning, but you have known sadness and you will know sadness. What is the promise? He will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's what this text should mean to you and to me. I ask you, who can dry tears the way Jesus can dry tears? I ask you, who will dry tears the way Jesus will dry tears? And God's people said,